0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 11, The Crepes of Lofar de
1: Messier. Hey hey listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Flush what we flush. Drink antifreeze when we drink antifreeze. Kids, don't drink antifreeze. And today I'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 11, The Crepes of Wrath, which was originally aired on April fifteenth, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about Lothar de Mezier becoming Prime Minister
0: of the former German Democratic Republic, otherwise known as East Germany. And that happened on April the 12th, 1990, just three days before the Crapes of Wrath was first aired. It's an important part of German reunification, so we'll hear a fair amount about that too.
1: Excellent. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospectacus.org. And some people did send eels. Yes. <laughs> so, longtime friend of the show, Tim Worthington, tells us that the axe of Nopolt, which I mentioned in our last episode but couldn't place, was from a sketch about Dungeons & Dragons in the radio version of the Mary Whitehouse experience, which is definitely something that I would have been exposed to at the time. Uh, and I quote... Worth stressing that it was a punt and Dennis gag, countering the widespread and wrong modern belief that only Newman and Badil were any good.
0: <laughs> OK.
1: And would you believe we also have an answer as to why Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was called Bong Bong? Yes. So, longtime friend of... well, me, really, Brian Robinson, <laughs> former drummer in the excellent band Aeris Presley, who, for legal reasons, I was not the bass player in... Uh, tells us that the name Bongbong is quite common in the Philippines. He goes on to say there is a food shop called Bong and names are often doubled up, Bong Bong, Jong Den Den Act. There is also a famous actor in the Philippines called Ding Dong. Wow. Okay. So there we go. It might simply be a given name that seems odd to us culturally, uh, but really isn't in context. Okay.
0: Uh, well, uh, that's a bit disappointing. You 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 want it to mean something. I I, I mean I can understand how. Some names are doubled up in the Philippines. That's fine. But what does bong mean in the first place?
1: It's just a nine? That's... Oh. Okay, it could be it could be an equivalent of a British name of some sort. For instance, I, I recently learned that uh, Ferrari in Italy is the equivalent of Smith in Britain. Oh, OK. With uh, Ferrari coming from uh, Ferro for uh, iron. Oh, Nice. That's a good little bit of trivia, I didn't know that. It really is, it really is, but not as good as the bits of trivia given to us by Tim and Brian. Thank you very much, guys.
0: Yeah, cheers, guys. Keep them coming in. We do read your emails and tweets at us, so uh, so, yeah. Yep, we've just proved it, so
1: there we go. Yes, Um, absolutely. So, without further ado, Season 1, Episode 11, The Crapes of Wrath, which aired on April the 15th, 1990, so there was another three-week gap between this and the previous episode. But Gareth, I hear everybody ask en masse, (laughs) what was the UK number one at the time? It was Madonna, with Vogue. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So voguing was a dance which the uh, perennial culture tourist observed in the New York gay nightclub scene. And this is essentially a house song celebrating said trend and also espousing enjoyment through abandon in dance. Madonna also takes a chance to link herself once again to Golden Age Hollywood. Though, rather than her cheeky, almost punk co-opting of Marilyn Monroe's image in the video for Material Girl, she just lists a load of names in the middle eight. The video was directed by David Fincher, who went on to direct Seven, and was included on an album called I'm Breathless, which included songs from, and ostensibly acted as the soundtrack to, the movie Dick Tracy, which Madonna was fresh off of being in. Oh, okay.
0: Well, that's some real early 90s references there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I'd just like to give a big shout-out to Ormwatch, uh, you'll know who you are, uh, with whom I had a very spirited conversation yesterday about what the best Madonna track was. And uh, since I'm the only one of the people involved in that conversation who has mm-hmm. a podcast, I'd like to take a chance to say, it's Material Girl, and you were all wrong.
0: Uh, I can only second that. Even though I don't have any strong
1: opinions, I'm sat next to someone who does. So. Excellent. And you know which side your bread's buttered, so that's good. Um, US viewership... Nielsen rating was 15.9, the second highest rated Fox show of the week, and whilst I can't actually find out what the first was, I'm willing to bet it was Married With Children. Do we know anything about Married With Children? We mention it every week. I know absolutely nothing about it. Well, we are not far away from finding out about it, because in a future episode, uh, I will be devoting some time to Married With Children. As I think it's an interesting counterpoint to The Simpsons, uh, and it kind of shows in, in tandem with The Simpsons what the Fox network was aiming for as sort of an upstart network at the time. OK. Um, but yeah, it's not really a show that's that well known in Britain, I would say. Although I'd never heard of it. It was a cultural phenomenon in America at the time. So, so there we go. So uh, tune in to a later episode there and you know, you'll hear all about it.
0: Throw forward. You've, you've heard about Bong Bong on this episode and Married with Children in a later episode. Good oh, stuff.
1: Fantastic. Uh, production number 7G13. It was the last episode produced in the original production block, which, unlike later seasons, really only included season one's episodes. Um, in later seasons, we'll see them sort of stocking up episodes uh, for use down the line. Uh, but yeah, that, that was it. It does have a sort of an end-of-term feel to it, given that there's a massive change of scenery in this one. Mm. Um, the chalkboard gag is garlic gum is not funny. Now, mm-hmm. just just before when we were watching the episode, I, I, I suddenly had a eureka moment. Uh, in season one, all of the chalkboard gags seem to be at least tangentially related to the episode's that uh, kind of follow them. So obviously, garlic gum is not funny. That's a bit of a French reference. I will not call the teacher hotcakes on Homer's night out. You know, it's oh, it's, yeah. it's almost like it could be something that he's doing either just after or during the events of the episode. And that's not necessarily going to be the case going forward. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. I guess I haven't slept much recently. But there <laughs> we go. And the couch gag, Homer pops off the end of the couch and says, dough. We've seen that before. We have, and I can't remember what episode it was on this time, but all of the couch gags in season one are doubled up, at the very least. So, what happens? Well, Bart's rush to feed his pet frog... Ooh, see, that's going to be important later. Mm -hmm. ...leads to him littering the hallway with possessions. And when Homer skids downstairs on Bart's skateboard, he is trapped in a private hell with a broken, talking Krusty doll. This leads to two things. Homer having a back injury, and Bart discovering a single cherry bomb whilst tidying up. He takes the explosive to school the next day, and after he and his iconic gang that we all remember that's Bart, Milhouse, Richard and Lewis, meet Principal Skinner's mother for the first time, Bart's weakness for the classics leads him to flush the bomb, just as Mrs Skinner is paying a visit to the ladies' room. The Principal frog marches Bart back home, finding Homer on the sofa with a handbell making Marge's life a misery. (laughs) Skinner dramatically proposes deportation before revealing his plan. Send Bart on the foreign exchange programme by pulling some strings, getting him out of everyone's hair for three months. Not a long-term plan, but a brief respite that Homer and Skinner are more than happy to take. So it is decided that Bart, who is convinced that the life of a frog is the life for him, will go to a lovely little chateau in the French countryside, and the Simpsons will welcome an Albanian child into their home. Things go south upon Bart's arrival at Chateau Maison, which turns out to be a horribly run-down vineyard where the residents César and his nephew Ugolin will be expecting him to replace the labour of their ailing donkey. They steal his possessions, feed him poorly, beat him, and set him to work manually plucking a million grapes. Meanwhile, Adil Hoxer is settling in well at the Simpsons' home, despite arguments with Lisa about whether America is the land of opportunities, or whether the machinery of capitalism is oiled with the blood of the workers. <laughs> touches the Jeremy Corbyns there. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. And also, despite Principal Skinner's speech Springfield Elementary upon his arrival, which I present here in full for maximum face palm ability. <laughs> you might find his accent peculiar. Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. But I urge you all to give little Adil the benefit of the doubt. This way, and only in this way, do we hope to better understand our backward neighbours throughout the world. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Adil is doing a great job, and helps out around the home. Hober is happy to have a better functioning family unit, to the extent that he considers exchanging Lisa as well. And is thrilled when Adil wants to visit him at work at the nuclear power plant showing particular interest in photographing the top-secret plutonium isolation module, located on the third floor next to the candy machine. Yes, in a proper reds-under-the-beds twist, Adil is a spy codenamed Sparrow, <laughs> and faxes his photographs of the module to his superiors in Tirana. The final straw for a beleaguered Bart comes when he stumbles upon César and Ugolin mixing antifreeze into their wine, and is forced to taste it. When sent to pick up more antifreeze, He attempts to talk to a gendarme, but lacks the basic French required. Luckily, and this is definitely how learning a language works, (laughs) Bart is suddenly able to speak French to a pretty decent standard, because he's listened to it for two months. (laughs) Oi. César and Ugolin are arrested, as is a deal who is swapped for an American spy of the same age. This is highly reminiscent of an Alexei Sale routine that I used to know by heart about passing details of the fifth-form woodwork syllabus to the Russian government and being (laughs) traded at Checkpoint Charlie for a bag of balloons and a pencil. (laughs) Bart sums up his experiences in France in the wonderfully glib line, So basically, I met one nice French person, Mm -hmm. and Homer uncorks a bottle of wine with his teeth, like a champ. (laughs) Yes, very good, very good.
0: The thing I like about this episode is how they've got they've gone for a sort of Cold War theme with the whole spy stuff going on, but they've sort of just made everything a bit lighter. So it's so the kids are spies, and they're not from the Soviet Union, which would have been too obvious. They're from Albania, and Albania is a very very interesting
1: choice, and it's quite an intelligent choice as well. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's actually a I would say a deeper reasoning behind that. There's a there's reasoning that will, will probably disappoint you, which we'll come to uh, uh, as to why they chose Albania. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I thought that was an odd twist in that you know it's an exchange program. I would imagine you'd be exchanging like for like, so you would get a French child. Mm. So the the shoehorning in of a of a child from the Eastern Bloc does seem to be a deliberate attempt to build a sort of communist spy storyline into it. Um, and straight, I guess it's sort of of its time, but it wouldn't be of its time for much longer. No, as no. we're hearing in every every one of our sort of historical things that isn't about Thatcher uh, in these episodes, <laughs> um, you know, the the Soviet Union is in the midst of being dismantled, pretty and, much, and will not be the source of cheap humor that it has been for uh, American uh, kind of comedians throughout the eighties. No,
0: definitely, definitely, because cause Albania was was on the side of Moscow during the Cold War. It was it was part of the Warsaw Pact. But I think it was one of the most closed-off countries, certainly in Europe, almost in the world. So having a kid there visiting Springfield is quite is quite a clever thing to do because Albania's almost a blank canvas. Because I'd imagine that most of the American audience hadn't even heard of
1: Albania. Or am I being a bit patronizing there? I think it's a possibility, especially when you consider everything kind of east of the Berlin Wall was the Soviet Union, essentially, to America and and indeed most of the West at that stage. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I love what Homer says about him Uh, (laughs) when Skinner says, uh, you'll be getting Albanian. And he says, what, white with pink eyes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But who wrote that episode? Who, Who wrote... I didn't, said episode. Sp- I didn't spot. Well, there's actually four credited writers for this one. Oh, wow. Okay. We've got Sam Simon, who we've spoken about before. We've got John Vitti, who we've spoken about before. Mm-hmm. And we've got John Schwartzwelder. Doesn't who, exist. Who doesn't exist. Yeah. No such person. We've, yeah, we've done that. No such person as John Schwartzwelder. But we've also got George Meyer. Ooh. George Meyer? He's new. Hooray! But linked to some people we've discussed previously. So let's pause a moment to take him in. He's, would you believe... Another Harvard Lampoon writer.
2: Ugh.
1: He was hired by David Letterman to provide content for his talk show, and went from there to Saturday Night Live. He then tired of New York life and moved to Colorado, where he started a humor magazine called Army Man, which we've heard about before. Its contributors included Johns Vitti and Schwarzwelder. Well, whoever was masquerading as John oh, yeah, Schwarzwelder yeah, yeah, at yeah. the time, whoever wore the mantle... <laughs> much like Zorro or the Scarlet Pimpernel, imagine mm-hmm. it can be yep. can be passed on, uh, plus later Simpsons writers like Jeff Martin, Tom Gabble and Max Pross, and the much-maligned Ian Maxtone Graham, who is notable for two things, his incredibly volatile relationship with Simpsons fans, and, standing as he does at six foot eight, being the inspiration for the very tall man in the very small car in 22 <laughs> short films about Springfield.
0: The very tall man is one of my favourite little characters, just, just just because I've said before I've I've sat in trebants and I and, and and I had my knees up by my ears, so so, so yeah I can very much sympathise with him.
1: But anyway, lest we spend more time talking about Ian Max, Tone Graham than the person we're actually meant to be talking about, uh, let's get back to uh, Army Man. Sam Simon was a big fan of it and it was originally published as a reaction to a perceived decline in the quality of the Harvard Lampoon. It only lasted three issues, but it's nonetheless become a legendary publication with a rabid cult fanbase. Sam Simon snapped up a bunch of the staff for The Simpsons, and the rest is history. Meyer himself is known for being more active in rewriting than writing, meaning The Crepes of Wrath is a rare Simpsons writing credit for him. He is only credited with 12 episodes, though he has doubtlessly had a hand in crafting many more. He has left a couple of times and returned as a consultant a couple of times, and like most of the writers we're hearing about, he was involved in writing The Simpsons movie in 2007. Would you like some character debuts, Tom? Oh, yes, please. Well, we have César and Hugolin. They are French. They are. Not much more to it than that. <laughs> uh, though they do take their names from characters in the French films Jean de Florette and Manon de Sourcelles. Yes, they do star Gerard Depardieu, however, did you guess? <laughs> Despite being more like caricatures than characters, they will return twice. Spied briefly in season three's Lisa the Greek, and in a more pivotal role in season twenty-seven's Tecuria with Love, which also sees The Simpsons visit Paris. Odd fact, I watched that episode for the first time two hours ago, as it was coincidentally shown today on Sky One. Oh, that's so there we go. And it wasn't bad. Not fantastic. Not bad. You're saying that a
0: lot with these much more recent ones. Do do, do they sort of pick up a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a... uh, Hopefully we'll get to it. But there is a... There's a Nadir. Mm -hmm. This is all my opinion, obviously. But I I believe there is a a definite drop in quality uh, pretty much right into the toilet in season 11 and 12. It scrambles back up from there very gradually. So, kind of seasons thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. It's get getting it's getting quite good, uh-huh. and since then it's been consistently okay. You get a couple of couple of crackers every season. Few you can ignore. It's 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 settled into a a rut essentially. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean it's bad. And it's one thing that kind of it does annoy me a little bit in Simpsons fandom is that the the sort of. The one reading that you're allowed to have is that everything went rubbish after season ten, and there's no point in watching anything that is being produced today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fine. The show changed. Not everybody kind of came with it that was watching it in the first place. But I still think it's worth a watch. I don't think it's I don't think it's without artistic merit.
2: Okay. I don't
1: think it's without comedic merit either. Okay, Um, fair enough. But you you just can't expect what you had before. It is a different show. Yeah, definitely. Um, And that comes from having 30 seasons. Yeah, yeah. And
0: different writers. And I think the writing process must have changed. Because we were talking just then, uh, George Meyer, about how he's more involved in developing scripts. Because I've seen episodes where... Okay, you get told that each gag in the simpsons gets rewritten like up to 30 times and my favorite example of this and i can't remember which which episode it is but homer is trying to tell bart about women and he says that women are like uh, and he's just looking for stuff and he goes uh, a refrigerator they're about 300 pounds they make ice uh actually a woman is more like a beer and and he then he gets very very drunk and then he <laughs> and then he starts saying so I says to him, yeah, if you want that money, come and find it, because I don't know where it is, you baloney. You make me want a wretch. <laughs> now, I would have loved to have been in the room with that last line, because, because I, think, I, I think they're going, okay, well, what's he going to say? Well, how about you make me want to be sick? Go, well, okay, that's, that's all right, but how, how about something a bit more aggressive? You make me want to puke. Uh, yeah, yeah, not bad, but hang but hang on, why don't we play to the thing where when you get drunk, you sort of get a bit more confident in what you say and you almost slightly expand your vocabulary. You make me want a wretch. Perfect.
1: <laughs> you can sort of see that process in a lot of the earlier episodes, which you can't in the later ones. I do also like a good smash cut from Homer sober to Homer drunk. Yes. Um, I think my favourite is in the in the Springfield files, where uh, they they cut to him five beers later, and f- um, he's saying,
0: "Is he talking to Mulder and Scully?"
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, they cut to him five beers later, and he's saying, and I forget wh- exactly which colours it is, but uh, some long lines of red M and M, blue M and M. They all wind up the same colour in the end. <laughs> That's,
0: that's before he said that they were discussing Wittgenstein over a game of backgammon <laughs> which is some of the best lying ever.
1: Uh, back to the debuts. There's uh, obviously Adil Hoxer mm-hmm. the Albanian child spy with a family somewhat visually reminiscent of The Simpsons. He hasn't appeared again. But he does put me in mind of Pepe the child Homer is assigned by the Bigger Brothers programme. Yeah, that's what I was thinking episode. as
0: well. Yeah, definitely.
1: And we also get to see Agnes Skinner Sort of. Uh, voiced by Tress McNeil, but a completely different characterisation of this character. Not yet the tyrant of later episodes. Which, along with Skinner's mama's boy persona, seems to me have a- to have appeared initially out of a single psycho reference in Season 4, Episode 14, Brother from the Same Planet. Mm. But the production staff has speculated that perhaps being blasted off of a toilet in this episode was the roots of her later disagreeability. Although for that to be true, you'd have to ignore a great deal of other evidence and dialogue. So let's just leave that one. For now, she's simply a frail old woman touring her son's place of work, though she does reveal that Seymour's nickname is Spanky, which I don't believe has ever been referenced again. No, because it doesn't
0: really do anything, does it? No, no. It, it, it It just slightly reduces Skinner's
1: authority with the children, and you don't really want to do that. No. Did you know, Tom? Did you know... That Adil Hoxha, actually, of course you know this, of course you're going to know this, but perhaps the listeners won't. So yeah, go on. Let, let's give it a go. Adil Hoxha is named after the Albanian head of state, Enver Hoxha, who reigned from 1941 until his death in 1985. Mm-hmm. yep. His rule included the deposition of King Zog, the rebuilding of the country after World War II, the building of Albania's first railway and the raising of the adult literacy rate from a mere 5% to 98%, mm. but also included mass repression via labour camps and the heavy hand of the Sigurimi secret police. He's also had a branch of communism named after him, with several Maoist parties becoming Hoxaist in his stead. Mm. Mm. That's really more like a bit than you do, so I'm sorry if I've nicknamed material. No, 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 uh, uh, that's all
0: pre-Simpsons.
1: Oh, excellent. Okay, right. I'm not, not hoarding in there. That's good. Yeah, um, and why Albania? According to the production staff, it's for two reasons. One, because they hadn't seen many references to Albania on television until that point, which is something that we touched on earlier. That's such a weird thing to think. And as a tribute of sorts to the late John Belushi, whose parents were Albanian-Americans. Oh, okay. That's a good bit of trivia. I didn't know that. There we go. Right. And that, my friends, that is The Crepes of Wrath.
0: Very good, very good.
1: Now, let's get some of that sweet, sweet German reunification <laughs> yes, on the go. Yes, I've I've, I've,
0: I've still got in my head who on earth watches TV and says, do you know what country you don't see on TV enough? Albania! Where's all the comedy about Albania? Especially in, like, like 1990. How strange. Okay, right, German reunification. So... We've already talked a bit about the final days of East Germany in episode two, about the storming of the Stasi HQ. I've just about got over that name, I have to say. And that's specifically about the Stasi, the loathed secret police of the German Democratic Republic. This is the story of how the two Germanys became one on October 3rd, 1990. But first, a bit about how there came to be two Germanys in the first place. At the end of World War II, Nazi Germany was totally defeated, with Hitler dead in a ditch on fire.
1: Now... He was on fire, or the ditch was on fire? Well, both were on fire,
0: because they poured a can of petrol over him. Oh, okay. So, it's very odd, the end of the Second World War, because usually how wars work is you'll have two armies, they have a fight, one side will realise they can't win, and they'll... Negotiate a surrender and there might be exchange of land, something like that. But in the case of World War 2, Nazi Germany was more or less gone. There was no one to negotiate with. So so, so it was basically the Allies decided what happened. So, of course, the borders of Germany were redrawn. Alsace-Lorraine returned to French control. And the Saarland became a French protectorate although it became part of West Germany in 1957. Over in the east, the Polish border was moved westwards to the oder neisse line, and East Prussia was split between Poland and the Soviet Union. The rest of Germany was quartered up into four zones of occupation and administered by the four major Allied powers. So that's the UK, the USA, France and the Soviet Union. The capital, Berlin, was also quartered up, despite being more or less in the middle of the Soviet zone. The four powers had what became known as reserved rights on deciding the future of Germany. So any big decisions on the future of Germany in any form could only happen with the agreement of those four powers. And this was all arranged at the Yalta and Potsdam conferences. Fun fact about the Potsdam conference, the UK was originally represented by Winston Churchill... But after Labour won the general election, he was replaced halfway through by Clement Attlee. That's one thing that people keep forgetting about Churchill. They they go, oh, great man, you you know, greatest Britain ever. He called a snap election after the end of the Second World War, assuming that he'd win it because, you know, war hero. But it was complete opposite. It was a a Labour landslide. So Clement Attlee became Prime Minister. And because of that, we got the NHS and the welfare state, essentially. And I don't know what that must have been for the other people at Potsdam. Just just suddenly the, the head of state of, <laughs> of the UK is just replaced halfway through. That must have been bizarre.
1: Do you think the uh, voting public blamed Churchill for there being a war in the first place? No, no. What it would have been, well, it would have been several things.
0: People remembered what happened at the end of the First World War because when British soldiers came back, they weren't treated particularly well. And also, during the Second World War, there was a coalition government, and Labour were essentially looking after the home front, so all the you know dig for victory stuff, all all that kind of thing, that was all looked after by Labour, while the Tories were looking after the um, you know the fighting essentially, and a lot of people in the electorate thought, well, Labour did a really good job. We're going into peacetime now. We know the Tories are good for war, but we're not at war anymore, so let's get labouring, because we know that they can manage the peace. That's my idea anyway. I'm I'm completely off script now. That was all completely improvised. Anyway, so the British, French, and American sectors became the Federal Republic of Germany, or the FRG, otherwise known as West Germany. And the Soviet zone became the German Democratic Republic, or GDR. The countries went in very different directions – The West was a democracy with a free market economy. It experienced the Wirtschaftswunder, I hope I've said that right, which translates as economic miracle, and quickly became an economic powerhouse. The East, however, was very different. It was an authoritarian regime run on socialist principles with state ownership of all major industries. The Berlin Wall was built in 1961 to keep people in the East, and the population was kept in check by the hated secret police, the Stasi. The two sides, and especially Berlin, were at the epicentre of the Cold War, with American and Soviet tanks facing off against each other. I still, I still don't really know what was the cause of that incident. I think someone said something about someone else's mum. And uh, yeah, it was only called off when they got bored, essentially, and they just went home. So West Germany became a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, in 1955. Uh, NATO was, and to an extent still is, an alliance between the US and its European allies as a defence against the Soviet Union, and later Russia. In response, the Soviet Union came up with the Warsaw Pact, an alliance between itself and various countries behind the Iron Curtain. West Germany was part of NATO, and the GDR was signed up to the Warsaw Pact. So it's not that you've just got two countries that are politically and economically at odds. as part of the wider picture that they're interlocked in the context of the Cold War. The idea of the two countries becoming one in the 50s and 60s, forget it. And the status quo held for the best part of 40 years. Then 1989 rolled around. Revolutions saw various communist leaders deposed including Nikolai Ceaușescu of Romania, see episode one, Simpsons Roasting on a Romanian Revolution. Getting wind of this, the people of East Germany protested against their government and protested for the right to travel to the West. Rather than immediately bow down to the protests, the East German government, led by Erich Honecker, organised a huge military parade to mark the 40th anniversary of the GDR. The Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev attended, and while there he tried to persuade Honecker to embrace reforms. I mean, Gorbachev was taking the USSR through some reforms at the time, you know, your glasnost and perestroika. So, after many protests, the East German government was due to announce that its citizens would be allowed to travel to the West. So, Honecker was eventually deposed. This wasn't going to be completely free travel, but it was going to be a lot less restrictive. And this was announced by the party spokesman, a guy called Gunter Schabowski on November the 9th, 1989. Western journalists were taken aback at this announcement and asked him when the new rules would take effect. In a panic, Chabowski mistakenly replied, "Uh, immediately. And this was broadcast on the news. And this caused a huge amount of confusion. Tens of thousands headed to the wall. The border guards received little in the way of instruction from their superiors, and in the face of so many people, they opened they open the borders. Almost accidentally, free travel from east to the west had become a reality. You know, if, if he'd have just said, oh, the rules take place tomorrow, the Berlin Wall might not have come down. So just two weeks after this, the Chancellor of West Germany, Helmut Kohl, announced a 10-point plan for German reunification. And he did it a little bit sneakily as well, because... The custom at the time was, if any West German leader was going to make any sort of major announcement, they'd let the four powers know first. And Cole told the Americans what he was going to say an hour before he said it, and he only told them in German. So they didn't have time to get it translated.
1: (laughs) That is... that's magnificent. Mm, mm. Now, given
0: how quickly reunification happened, and how in 2018 we couldn't imagine a divided Germany you might be surprised to learn that there was initially a lot of opposition to the idea. Having said that, the elder generation at the time could still remember the horrors of the Second World War, the Nazis and the Holocaust. Indeed, Yitzhak Shamir, the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, stated that the country that decided to kill millions of people in the Holocaust will try and do it again. To him, the division of Germany was a good thing because it severely curtailed Germany's power. It wasn't just Shamir who expressed concern. Remember who was the UK Prime Minister at the time? It wasn't our favourite Margaret Thatcher, It it? was, it was. Yep, it was Margaret Thatcher indeed. She had a habit of carrying around a map of Germany's 1937 borders in her handbag so that she could show others what she called the German problem. Because Germany lost a lot of territory after the Second World War and the idea was that Germany still harboured after those territories. So anything that increased the power of Germany would be bad because then Germany would try and get those territories back and she even went so far as to tell a meeting of the European Community Summit that we defeated the Germans twice and now they're back and she said that right in the face of Helmut Kohl. France too had reservations however in reality the only way they could stop reunification was through war and nobody wanted that the USA was less of a problem. They needed less convincing. To them, West Germany was a good ally who they were keen to support. They didn't see a united Germany as a threat like the UK and France did. Also, if the East was incorporated into the, into the West, then there's a possibility that they could move the, the NATO bases that were in West Germany, they could move them a bit closer to Russia. Hmm. So the USSR presented an entirely different challenge. The GDR was still part of the Warsaw Pact, and losing it meant losing a military ally. On top of that, Germany was the eastmost land frontier of the Cold War. And like I just said, the West was home to NATO bases, and the USSR feared that reunification could push these bases further towards Moscow. However, the USSR, they had problems of their own. They'd got their tie caught in a hot dog machine, and and things were going to get worse
1: before they got better. Beard in the pencil sharpener.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So USSR pretty much broke all of those reforms that Gorbachev was doing. It was in a bad, bad way. But that meant that Helmut Kohl had a fairly obvious ace up his sleeve. Money. So Gorbachev's reforms had had a hugely negative effect on the Soviet economy. Country pretty much broke. And Kohl's proposal to the Soviets that in return for unification, Germany would make... Billions of dollars worth of loans available to them. On top of that, they promised that no NATO bases would be constructed in the former GDR and that when Soviet troops left, it wouldn't be seen as a retreat. And also, the GDR was a bit of a financial burden on the USSR because the USSR was propping it up monetarily. And whilst all this is going on, the political landscape in the East quickly changed. Eric Honecker had already been ousted and replaced by Egon Krenz, and his government had already started steps towards liberalisation. East Germany turned towards parliamentary democracy, with the events of this period becoming known as Die Winder, or The Turn. Again, my German is appalling and I apologise. On March 18th, 1990, the GDR held free and fair elections. The former ruling party, the SED, had rebranded itself as the Party of Democratic Socialism and came third the East German branch of the Christian Democratic Union, led by Lothar de Maizière, won the most seats. After some protracted coalition talks, which are a bit of a tradition in Central Europe, because, you know, lots of parties, everyone trying to team up with everyone else, de Messier became the Prime Minister of East Germany on April the 12th, 1990, just three days before the Crapes of Rath was first aired. The coalition was in favour of reunification and it commanded a two-thirds majority in the Volkskammer, that's East German Parliament, going over the threshold required to make changes to the constitution and even to get rid of the country altogether. Following the election in Germany, pretty much all sides were ready for talks. They took place between East and West Germany, as well as the UK, France, USA and USSR. History remembers this format as the four plus two negotiations. So, you know, your four powers with reserve rights and the two Germanys. The talks allayed a lot of the fears of France and the UK. The size of the German armed forces was limited and the country was not allowed to possess any chemical, biological or nuclear weapons. Germany would make no further territorial claims and the border with Poland at the Neisse line was formally established. So the four plus two treaty or the Treaty on the Final Settlement with Respect to Germany, to give it its full catchy name, was signed in Moscow on the 12th of September 1990, and Germany officially became one country on October the 3rd. In researching this, I watched the BBC Breakfast News from that day, and what I'd like to do is just play a little clip from Martin Bell. Now... Now, Martin Bell, very respected broadcaster, ended up becoming MP for Tatton in 1997. I think he ran against uh, Neil Hamilton, who was under pressure for the whole Cash for Questions thing. I mean, that's another story. So, OK.
1: And one we'll get to in 1997, though. Yeah, hopefully.
0: <laughs> OK.
1: Again, it wasn't entirely according to plan. People crashed at the front of the crowd were helped to safety by the platform party. But the incident was drowned out by such explosions as Berlin hasn't known probably since 1945. How harsh is that?
0: Right. Good Lord. But it was, it was a lot of fun watching that BBC News from 1990 because, don't know about you, but I'm a massive fan of the day-to-day, uh, Brass Eye, pretty much anything done by Chris Morris. And one of the things they have on day-to-day is business news. So I just want to give you a little snatch of collaterally Sisters.
2: And there was a big whoop of dismay in the city today, Chris, when Troublefinch Finch Dusky Holdings chopped off an eighth at 2.4 after a disappointing gutter surge tomorrow. Chris, the Central Numerical Council issued the new seven today. It'll be three kilos heavier than the old seven and made of glass. Chris, Gluttony Sisters. Spack Handy chop Tubes up 2.4, but let's see how the pound fared today with a quick look at the currency, Susan. And as you can see, it started off the day quite healthily as a medium Susan, while the yen surged to a quite attractive, popular Susan by close of trading, with the mark resting on a plain, dumpy Susan with bad ears. Chris, summary, business, Chris.
0: <laughs> OK, so, 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 so that's just a little bit of collaterally Sisters. So here's a little bit of real business news from 1990.
1: And now, with the time at 14 minutes past seven, the latest business news from Sarah Coburn.
2: Good morning, a quick look at the markets. In Tokyo, the Nikkei average has had a jumpy day. After closing up more than 300 points at lunchtime, it later slipped back and closed just a few minutes ago, down 49 points at 22,849. In Hong Kong, stocks have continued their downward trend. They're now down 46 points at 2,858. Wall Street fell last night. The Dow closed down over 10.5 points at 2,505. Gold is slightly firmer this morning. It's up one and a half dollars an ounce. And on the foreign exchanges, the pound is mixed. Against the dollar, it's standing at 1.89. Exactly, that's uh, up very nearly half a cent. And against the Deutsche Mark, it's at 2.92.99, down a third of a fennig. And the dollar is weaker this morning. It's standing against the Deutsche Mark at 1.55 exactly. That's down about uh, three quarters of a fenig. And against the yen, it's at 136. That's the business news for the moment.
0: Do you do does a absolutely brilliant job with the business but one thing i completely forgot is that germany's currency the deutschmark was divided into fenix and that is a wonderful word fennec because because in the day-to-day business stuff they say the word for over and over again because it's a great comedy word because of the emphasis you put on f especially if you're doing received pronunciation so four 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 but with fennec with that pf You've got even more of an opportunity, and she doesn't even know she's doing it. <laughs> a, a fourth of a pfennig. It's amazing. Anyway, so that is a bit of early 90s comedy and its roots for you. I just think that's wonderful. Okay, so while the mood throughout the new Germany was largely positive and celebratory, the story of what happened next is far from, and everybody lived happily ever after. It's important to remember that the two Germanys did not strictly merge, a new country wasn't formed. Instead, the East joined the West. The territory of the GDR became part of the Federal Republic of Germany. And because the two Germanys had gone in completely different directions following World War II, the East German economy was way behind that of the West. On the other hand, the state-run economy of the GDR would always find work and shelter for its citizens. So homelessness and unemployment weren't really an issue. Following unification, most uncompetitive state-owned industries in the East were bought by private companies from the West, and many were closed down. The government didn't have an obligation to provide housing for everyone, so people became un- unemployed, people c- became homeless. You know, that was a pretty much new thing in the in the GDR. In order for the West to aid the East, a new tax called the Solidarity Surcharge, which is, which again is quite a nice fluffy thing to call a tax. It's, it, it's not quite up there with community charge, but it's getting there. So this solidarity surcharge was introduced. Some resented this tax, and it led to negative attitudes between East and West. Some in the West saw those in the East as freeloaders, always looking for something for nothing. At the opposite end, some in the East saw Westerners as very snooty, always looking down on them and strutting around like they owned the place. Uh, Most of the time they did. Anyway. So nowadays, in 2018, The united Germany is very much in the centre of the European Union. The dream of a single currency was realised in 2002, and Germany is the world's fourth largest economy. Although a huge amount of reconstruction has taken place in the East, I'm thinking the uh, cathedral at Dresden, for one thing, there is some way still to go, and the solidarity surcharge is still in place. 18 years later. Wow. Yep. One lasting image of the divide is Berlin at night. The two sides use different lighting, so the west shines a bluish-green, while the east is lit up with a yellowish hue. Although unity has been achieved, and the past is for some just a memory, some scars of division will forever remain, unfortunately. So there we are, story of story of German unification.
1: Now I'm sorry to drag this to a, a lower-brow platform, but just towards the end of that it occurred to me, didn't the German football team still play as West Germany in the 1990 World Cup? They did, they did, because they entered
0: the whole process.
1: Uh, that of course, qualification would have taken place as West Germany, wouldn't yeah. it? So the, the, team, the team that eventually wound up there was, had to be West Germany.
0: Yeah, yeah, beca- Yeah, because the way football tournaments work is you can't just change who you are in the middle of it. So 1990 World Cup... The qualification for it would have started 1988 or something like that. So, yeah, West and East Germany very much existed back then. You know, it didn't become Germany just like in the middle of the World Cup, no. This
1: is also, uh, there's another country that's going to have problems with this. And I'm sure in a couple of seasons' time we'll be talking about them. But Yugoslavia, who Mm. went out of existence having qualified for Euro 92... Yes, that's right. Yeah, and we're replaced by the next team. Now, my football knowledge isn't great, but I seem to remember that team was Denmark, who won Euro '92. Oh uh, yeah, that's a
0: good bit of trivia. If anyone,
1: if it's actually true, yeah, because <laughs> it might not be. And if anybody knows whether that was true or not, you know where to get this. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing is we've we've we basically. I'm not going to say we're finished with German uh, reunification at this stage, but that that does seem to be a kind of a good. Yeah, we've been through a good chunk of it thus far. Mm. And we've yet to mention David Hasselhoff, or Wind of, <laughs> Winds of Change by the Scorpions. Oh, um, so, yeah. so this is me doing that, basically. Yeah, go on. Go, what, what, what
0: is the story of David Hasselhoff? Because I think I've seen the footage. Was he there when the wall came down, or in unification, or, or what?
1: David Hasselhoff is uncommonly popular in Germany uh, as, a, as a singer more than as an actor. Um, but I still haven't got to the bottom of what his actual uh, (laughs) role in reunification or the fall of the Berlin Wall was. Probably a lot less than he makes it out to be, I would have
0: thought. Yeah, probably, probably.
1: As for Winds of Change, uh, whilst it was obviously by a European metal band in Scorpions... (laughs) I think, to be honest, it was just not a lot of kind of documentaries and news uh, footage at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Especially that kind of haunting whistle, which I won't do myself because I'm not that good at whistling. Mm. But you can all hear it in your heads now, I'm pretty sure. If you're of a certain age, which is basically mine, which I won't reveal what that is for for fear of shocking our (laughs) listeners. But um, yeah, the the two are intrinsically linked for Mm.
0: me. Speaking of Chris Morris, the Wind of Change was used in a Brass Eye sketch. It was, with Ted Moore walking away from camera. That's right, walking away from the estate of Cossack, or Cowsick, or as it's written. I, I love that sketch. Um, <laughs> talking about the kids who burst shops. <laughs> the kids fill the shops with rice, then pour in water, and stand back and laugh as the bricks are torn apart by the swelling food. <laughs>
1: Yes, that's right. It's uh, another episode of Shopburster, the Brass Eye uh, podcast.
0: Yes, yes. yeah. We're very much on a Chris Morris thing today.
1: Well, I, I think then that's uh, that's about all we've got time for, isn't it? I um, think
0: so. I think so.
1: Excellent. So uh, you can find us uh, on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus. You can send us an eel at podcast at org, uh, And stay tuned in a couple of weeks for our next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, it's... Uh, It's great to have you along for the ride.
0: Absolutely. And if you like the show, please rate and leave us a review on iTunes because it makes us feel all warm and fuzzy. We like it a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a really easy way to make us happy. Really easy. I mean, we could have a Patreon. We could charge you for this, but, mm-hmm. you know, but, but we don't. That's, yeah, exactly. That's worth a couple of stars at least. Yeah. And then yeah. You know, the general quality is is about three stars. Yeah. So so that that's five. Yeah, absolutely. We could have adverts at the start. Gareth, have you heard about Squarespace? Actually, i won't bother. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, see you all next time. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>